following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I came up with this idea because when you read your Bible, you need to notice how the stories are placed. So this grows out of the fact that there are two stories side beside each other in the New Testament. And then I thought, well, cooking shows are fun. Personally, I don't like them because uh, I want to eat the food and it's not there because I, I like eating. Uh, some of you might too. So today, we're, uh, there's no offense to uh, um, Manu and P- Pete here. We're, we're just playing on the idea. So just in case you think I don't like them. So we're looking at my kitchen rules. So we all know the story of the 5,000. Uh, We've probably heard it from Sunday school time, those of us who have been in churches. It's a rich repository of theology. It shows us that God provides. It recalls God's provision in the garden when he said you can eat from any tree. It recalls the wilderness when God uh, brought manna from heaven to feed the, the, the people of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. And when you read John's version of this in John chapter 6, and I know you all do your homework, so you'll all go home and do that. You'll notice that that leads into the bread of life discourse, where Jesus is the living bread from heaven. And so he is the new Moses who brings God's fresh work. It shows us the, the breaking in of the kingdom of God in Jesus' ministry, as he has the power to multiply food exponentially in a way that's never been seen before. Elisha fed a group of people uh, of 100 in the Old Testament, but here he feeds 5,000. So he's bigger than Moses, and he's bigger than Elisha. And it shows a concern for the poor. Right in the middle of the narrative, and we're not going to talk so much about this today, it says, you give them something to eat. And that comes just after the sending of the 12, when they were sent out to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And now Jesus comes along and says, there's another aspect of mission, and that is you give them something to eat. And wasn't it great that I'm here today and you were talking about the CAP program? So I'm glad that that's um, in your souls. And I can imagine after this message, you'll have too many people and you have to run a second one to have the dinners. It shows Jesus breaking social protocols as he dines with sinners. He also is possibly dining with Gentiles. Later on, he feeds the 4,000 and that's in Gentile territory. And so Jesus is breaking protocols because a a righteous Jewish person would not eat with a Gentile. Of course, that gets shattered in the New Testament as Jesus comes. But also dining with sinners for a rabbinic leader was, was not the done thing. And here we have Jesus with his friends. And of course, it looks towards communion and how appropriate that we've just had communion because Jesus breaks bread and gives thanks. And of course, later on, we break bread, or should I say his, bread, his body was broken for us, so we break bread to remember that. And it anticipates the great feast, the eschatological meal, they call it, which you read about in Isaiah 25, where the nations are going to gather with God and they're going to eat together. That's the party, the celebration, when the lamb has become the lion of Judah, as we, uh, we sang earlier. And of course, Luke 14 is about that. And at that banquet will be the people who are at the margins of society, the disabled, the sick, the people who society has pushed away. They are welcome to come to God's feast. So what about the 5,000? Well, there's more here. And I've mentioned the placement of the passage. uh, And we'll get on to that in a minute. Mark's version 
is placed straight after Herod has a party and he has a meal and he invites a whole lot of people to the meal and stuff happens. Then at the same time, pretty well uh, coincidental in terms of the sort of timing in the text, Jesus has a party. And so we're going to have a look at the two. We see a vivid contrast between the kingdoms of the world and the way the world thinks. And let me tell you, it hasn't changed much if you watch the news in the kingdom of God which is the only authentic kingdom that exists. So we've got to do a bit of imaginative time travel. I'm not going to try and do any of the accents, which would be terrible. But let's imagine that we're Petros or Manoah, and it's MKR Galilee, first century. Two instant restaurants. Let's think about them. First contestant, Herod Antipas and Herodias, his wife of Galilee. Huge figures, royalty. They live in Tiberias, which is circled on the map there, just on the western edge of the Sea of Galilee. You can visit there. I stayed there on a recent trip to Israel and then traveled around. It's now a very Jewish city, but it didn't start that way. He was born the son of Herod the Great, who anybody who knows their Bible knows about because he tried to kill Jesus when he was a kid. Matthew chapter 2, because Jesus was a threat to his throne which makes sense in a world of colliding empires where any threat to the throne is is to be killed. After his dad died, his father, like Alexander the Great and probably emulating him, divided up his kingdom for his sons. And that region of Peria and Galilee was his. So here's Peria here, Galilee. So he was the ruler of that area and his brothers had other areas to rule. He built this capital of Tiberias in about... 20 AD, which is interesting because that means Jesus is in his mid-20s and he's a carpenter and there's every chance that he was involved in the building project with his father. So he could be connected to this. There's a great palace that Josephus talks about with golden roofs and the royal treasury. Unfortunately, it hasn't been excavated, so we've never found it. Now, Herod the Antipas wasn't a man fully without a heart. When he populated his new city, naming it after the emperor, Tiberius, he brought in rich and poor, and he gave them houses in his his community, and he would then be benefactor to the poor. Now, he only did that to be famous and well-liked, because that's what you do, unlike a Christian who would help a person unconditionally, if we do it correctly. There were some hot baths nearby, the, the town of Emmaus. You might have heard of Emmaus in Luke 24. And at that time, it was a Gentile city. Righteous Jews did not want to live there because it was built on a holy graveyard. And in fact, if you go to Tiberias today, some of the saints of the Old Testament are buried in this town. So the second contestant is Herodias. She's also royalty. She's the daughter of Aristobulus IV, a Judean prince, also a son of Herod the Great. So this is typical ancient royal protocols. Uh, She's the daughter of Salome I, the sister of Herod the Great. So you've got family members marrying family members. Uh, She was formerly married to Herod Philip, her half-uncle. And of course, that means uh, that Antipas is also her uncle. So you see, we get the sort of incestuous relationships that you get in ancient uh, royal families. It was just the norm. He's now married to his half-brother, She's now married to um, Philip, Peter's half, Philip's half-brother here at Antipras. So we're keeping it in the family. Now, when you read Mark 10 later on, which is about divorce and it's about remarriage, 
And that, that one of the reasons that passage is there to show that the kingdom of God is different in terms of marriage than the, the, the nations of the world. So this, here it is right behind a lot of what's going on in Mark's gospel. So we come to the scene. Okay, that's um, Tiberius. That's a, a, a sort of artist's imagination of what that city was like back in the day. So let's get the setting of our first instant restaurant. King Herod, otherwise known as Antipas, heard of it. What he had heard of was the mission of the twelve. Jesus' apostles had gone out, casting out demons, healing, and preaching. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, in Jesus. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet. Like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, Jesus, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in a prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And there he is a prophet speaking to the king, which was one of the functions of the prophets of Israel. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept them safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod is drawn to John. He likes him, but John is in his face saying, you shouldn't be in this marriage. It is unlawful, a violation of God's law. So we come to the meal. So imagine yourself here. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Notice who's there. It's the, it's the, it's the, hoi, it's the, the, the hot shots of the city and the town. All the guns from the, the, the towns are there, the leading army people. The Romans who would be there, who are keeping an eye on the place, they're there. So this is an opulent royal banquet. For when Herodias' daughter Salome came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. So now you have dances, sexuality, sensuality, classic ancient stuff where the girls come and dance and the, you know, everyone's getting aroused. It's, 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 it's the whole thing. This is royalty in the ancient world. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Here at Antipas is really enjoying it. He's not phased that it's his wife's daughter. That's no problem to him. He vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Wow. Imagine that. He's got that we, we had on the map there, Peria and Galilee's big areas to half my kingdom. By the way, we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Now, what would you ask if a, if a king gave, offered you half the kingdom? Well, you wouldn't ask for someone's head on a platter, I should hope. Certainly not if you follow Jesus. Anyway, she came, uh, she, she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, the king was exceedingly, uh, sorry, gave him Give me, to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now we go, oh, that's disgusting. But this is first century stuff. This is normal. To poison a king at a banquet was quite common. Claudius would be poisoned at a, at a banquet a few years later, so Nero could be emperor. Nero was the emperor at the time of the writing of Mark's gospel. And it was probably engineered by Nero's mother. And Nero then had her killed later on. This is royal family stuff. So the head of... John the Baptist is born. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Another ancient royal uh, aspect, you don't break your oath. If you've said it, it's done. Immediately the king sent an ex- 
executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went in and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So how would this be judged? Well, we know how God's going to judge it. But what about our sort of fictional figures, Petros and Manoah? How might they have scored it? I suggest the contestants were mixed. Some gave it 30 out of 50. Maybe three of them gave it 10 because they loved the meal. They thought the meal was fantastic. But others were offended by, by the dessert. Uh, and so they gave it a zero. Maybe Petros gave six out of 30 because he wasn't particularly convinced with the dessert on the hum- of the human head. But the other one loved it because this is what a good royal meal should look like in the ancient world. Overall, I gave it 66, an interesting number, chosen for obvious reasons for those who read Revelation. Contestant two, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth is, if you will go this this side, this side. So Nazareth is just over there, slightly to the west towards the coast. So Jesus was born sometime around 4 BC under the reign of Herod Antipas' dad. He was the son of Joseph, the carpenter a young Jewess called Mary. Controversial birth, you know, illegitimate, maybe. There's questions being raised. Herod Antipas' father has tried to kill Jesus. He's the cousin of John the Baptist, who Herod has killed. So this is going to be a really interesting evening. You know how you get a bit of conflict at these things sometimes? It's half the reason we watch it, and half the reason they choose the contestants, so they'll fight with each other to entertain us. He's from Nazareth, a little town of only a couple of hundred people. So he's an obscure person who's got in amongst it. I remember a couple winning one of these shows from Mount Isla in Australia, and they always thought they were from a distant town. Rumor is he had helped build Tiberius. He's got no wife, and in the ancient world, not having a wife meant you didn't have food because girls did all the cooking, right? And he's a carpenter. Can he cook? The question is raised in the, in the ads we've watched for the show. He's from humble origins. Can he afford this because it's not cheap? You know, where's he done the practice for his cooking? Could be an interesting meal. So we come to the scene, the setting. The apostles returned to Jesus. So this is the same time that Herod's doing his thing and told him all that they had done and taught on their mission trip. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. They're tired. It's hard work ministry, isn't it, Michael? You need a break. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desert place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. No rest for for Jesus, is there? From all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. He's feeding them because humans don't live on bread alone, but the word of God. So this is Jesus, the shepherd, to the harassed people feeding them. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And there's that command in the middle of it. And so we come to the meal itself. They said to Jesus, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's half a year's wages or over half a year's wages for a person at the time. He said to them, How many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups by the green grass, on the green grass. 
So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. And of course, we know from Matthew's gospel, there were women and children present, which could boost the crowd up to even 20,000. So this is the second meal. So what do we make of this? Notice the contrast before we go to the judging. Who's here? The people who are here are not the leading people of Galilee. They're not the Romans. They're not the people who you would want at a dinner party to make your dinner party look cool. These are the people of the land. 90% of Israel at the time of Jesus was hungry or living by subsistence. There were very wealthy landowners who were buying up the land that people held from family, tribal land, and they were using the people as slave labor on their own land, tenant farmers. That's the parable of the... The tenants, if you read that later on in Mark's gospel. There is Roman rule. They're asking them to pay taxes. People like Zacchaeus are ripping off the people. There's the temple tax. There's a whole lot of tithing they've got to do. In Israel at the time of Jesus, you didn't just tithe once. But because there was a rabbinic dispute around the tithe systems in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which are slightly different, you paid a threefold tithe to make sure you covered everything. People were spending up to 45% of their income was going on tax and their income wasn't great because of the vagaries of the weather. They had a life expectancy of 35 to 40 and the woman was lower because she died in childbirth. And this is the group of people that are here. These are people here for healing. These are the disabled. These are the people who are lost. These are the mentally unwell. These are the people that Jesus is feeding and welcoming in here. It's completely different context. Look at the quality of the food. A couple of fish and a few loaves of bread. That isn't particularly good, isn't it? So when we come to the judging, let's see what we might think. The participants, it says, were fully satisfied. Now that's a really good word that's, taken, that's used in the Old Testament of what will happen when God's Messiah comes and filled people. They are fully, fully filled. So 40 out of 50 for them. But one of them voted against the meal, and that was Judas, who gave it a zero. He's never impressed. That might, that might be why later on he betrayed Jesus. I don't know. Petros gave it zero out of 30 because he thought it was unhygienic. He thought it was far too hot sitting outside. The instant restaurant setting was bad. The food was boring and there was no dessert. Manoah thought the waiters were very disorganized and uh, he would have preferred females and there was a lack of seasoning. So overall, they get 40. Jesus loses, he's out of the competition, unless, of course, they save him, but they don't. So they're not saved. Enough joking. <laughs> you have a brilliant contrast here of two kingdoms. One is Herod, who sees himself as a Roman and a mini-Roman, and he's leading on behalf of the Romans, and he's trying to emulate the Romans who are his heroes. His sons were sent to train in Rome. That's the kind of thing. He sees himself as a Roman. He's trying to convince everyone he's still a Jew. They don't like him because his, his parents aren't fully of Jewish heritage, and he's a convert, and they don't really like him. And then you've got Jesus, whose kingdom is inbreaking. There's something I haven't said. Herod offered the young girl half the kingdom, didn't she? How much of the kingdom does Jesus offer us? All of it. We are co-heirs with Jesus, the Son. 
God has given all things into Jesus' hand, right? And we reign with Jesus. And so we are co-heirs of the kingdom. Of course, we don't own it individually in that sense. So really, Herod doesn't offer that much compared to Jesus. So Herod is all about power. He's trying to impress. He's got the leading people in his palace. He's all about wealth. He's all about the best food. You can imagine, actually, the quality of food at that would have been magnificent. And anyone who didn't put up good food would have been put to death, probably. There's violence and there's murder at a meal, which we find offensive. And it is offensive. But this is a worldly kingdom by the patterns of the world. Even in Israel's stories, you read about their kingdoms. It's full of violence and marred human existence. So in, in reality, this is hell's kitchen, isn't it? This is not anything to be um, sort of lauded. Jesus, he offers us a whole kingdom. He's got people from the margins. Of course, everyone's invited. The leading people could have come, but they don't because they don't hear the call of the kingdom because they don't recognize the need. People who run kingdoms are preserving the status quo. They don't want it to be threatened. So they tend to oppose a guy like Jesus who says there's another way. It's a kingdom of powerlessness. People at the margins love where the compassionate son of God The shepherd sent from God feeds people spiritually and he feeds them materially. Service. Jesus here functions as the host. He's the one who's welcoming people to the meal. The the, the men are running around distributing the food. This is not a kingdom where we have a status of men and women and men are above women. No, we're a kingdom where everyone, there's neither male nor female. Poor people. The food is simple. You have the lowest of the low there. Uncleanness is not an issue. In Mark 7, Jesus will say, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. He's got sinners there hanging out with all the wrong people. And he's offering them eternal life as well as a good meal. He is the bread of heaven. This is heaven's kitchen. This is what God's kitchen looks like. This is what my kitchen rules looks like. Because in the universe, my, the kitchen of God rules. So we're under both kingdoms. We're under a kingdom, aren't we? We're in this kingdom with the USA, Great Britain, Australia, Canada, and others who speak English, the Anglophone world, and we hold power, and there's this wrestling and muscling going on around the world. Kingdoms are arise. The Western kingdom is being forced to self-identify more closely, and we see this in the news, to stand ourselves out. Oh, Europe's part of our kingdom too, so it's not all English speaking, isn't it? And they're ruling and they're dominating and there's rules of discourse and there's things you can and you can't say. And there's things that they want you to do. They want you to chase the the great American or New Zealand dream. Make sure you get a house, you know, pursue wealth, pursue your own status. This is what they're calling us to do. And we're like lambs to the slaughter so often. We don't don't see it because we're swept up in it. We even become defenders of it. So you hear right-wing Christians desperately trying to hold on to this empire. Well, there are good things about our empire. But one of the rules of our empire is that Christians are pushed to the margins. Be quiet. Stay in your churches. We don't mind you being here today. Just don't talk about it out there. And our job is to go out and to proclaim Jesus by feeding the 5,000 and getting in amongst it and being amongst them with a different set of values, the values of the kingdom of God. We're not going to yield to the desire for wealth or status 
or image or power or pride or hubris, these things. That's not what we're about. We're about the people who are out on the wilderness in the corner with 5,000 people or more feeding them simple food. So another question is who are we to identify with as God's people? And I want to leave you with this today. The kingdom is clearly for all. The first slide had all are invited. Correct. But most especially the marginalized are the ones that are going to hear at the call of the kingdom. The question becomes, where are these people in our suburb? Where are these people in our workplaces? Where are these people in our city? Where are these people in our schools, our universities, our techs? Where are these people where we hang out? I love the story of the Samaritan. When the guy's going along the road, he deals with the immediate need that he finds as he goes. The brilliance of the Samaritan story is he stops at great personal risk and he helps the man by the side of the road. The other two are busy, they've got jobs to do and they just walk past. What are we going to encounter when we get up tomorrow and we go off to work? Or we go to play sport? Or we go to our schools or our universities? We are the ones who are to look with eyes to see for those that would likely be at the feeding of the 5,000 and we're to feed them. How do we do that? We do that by being God's people. We don't preach at them. We don't tell them that they've got to do this and that. We just get alongside them with the love of Jesus. They're sheep without a shepherd. And we befriend them. And we let the Holy Spirit lead us in that process. These people are our people. So where are they? Are we out amongst them? It's great to have great churches and we want to welcome people and that's phase one. But are we encountering them in the, in the world as well? And our mission is one of hospitality. The story of the Gospels is God who's kitchen rules, inviting the world to that great feast that we're heading towards. We're moving towards that day, the great banquet, Luke 14. We're being invited. And then Jesus comes and enacts that, and then he sends the disciples out to go and enact that, and we carry on the tradition. Our job is, you should have 100 people wanting to host this meal. We go out and we reach people and we invite them. Hospitality is how we cross the line. We bring them into our world, and we do it with love and generosity as did Jesus providing for them spiritually and materially. One little thing is that we're in a society that is very, 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 very suspicious of the, the spoken word, right? You know this. So we have to reach them with our hearts and with our generosity and love and earn the right to share Jesus again with them, don't we? They need to see it in us. And then they'll say, you're not like the Christianity I've come in touch with. What, what's going on here? They need to feel it and they need to see it. And by this, the kingdom breaks in. So today, we go from here to be the people of the 5,000. Because those are the people that followed Jesus. And later on, once he had risen from the dead, I'm sure some of those people were in the 3,000 that got converted at Acts uh, in Pentecost. It's not about wealth. It's not about image. It's not about power. It's about us getting our hands dirty. Friends of sinners, giving and loving with compassion. Got a guy in my class. I've just taught a week of a master's course he lives in India, and he lives in a Christian part of India. And his, it's very Christianized, it's very wealthy. And he realized that he needed to go and find people in India that were at the margins. So what he's done is he's relocated himself into another part of India, in the Gujarat province. And he's part of a mission team, and they go out, and they go into villages, and they share Christ. And the other day, he pulls out a cell phone and says, hey, have a look at this photo. And I go, what is it? And there's a photo, and there's a man, uh, an Indian man, with six gorillas with guns over there, that strapped over their shoulders, and one of them shaking his hand. And he says, you know what's going on there? He said, no idea. He said, 
that those six guerrillas, they were Mao uh, separatists, were in the village when they preached. And they were hiding because it's dangerous. And what happened was that what they did was they heard the message and they came to him and they said, we want to give our lives to Jesus. We want to leave the kingdom that we're fighting this war for because we realize it is a null and void kingdom being swept away by the thing you're talking about. We want that. And he says, well, you'll have to hand your weapons into the police and hand yourselves in. Then we'll talk. They said, let's go then. And these six men apparently walked down to the local police station with the evangelist, handed themselves in, and they're going into an Indian prison. And my friend says, Indian prisons are not good. This is the power of the message. But they're ministering at the margins. Now, we're not all going to go and do this, are we? But in our contexts are people at the edges. They're there. They're the quiet ones. They're the people that no one notices. They're the ones that are melancholy. These are our people. These are God's people. God's, they're the ones that might hear God's call. So I want to encourage you this week to be a friend of sinners, to be generous and giving, and to be loving, and to emulate our Lord, whose kitchen rules. Because let's be honest, that's a, that's a full marks kitchen, isn't it? Let's pray. Father God, in that magnificent story, you show us that there's two ways to live. We can go down the direction of the world with all its images and its glory and its glossy advertising and its cleverness and its creativity and its science and all these things, which so much of it is wonderful, Lord, and so much of it even is sourced in you. Yet, Lord, we know it's corrupt because it feels wrong. We feel it every day. We feel that tension, that's, that stress and strain, that yearning for something different. And, Lord, we see in the feeding of the 5,000, a moment where you showed us what the kingdom is. Your miracle is a sign, as John calls it, of the kingdom. That you are our Lord. And Lord, you fed the 5,000. You feed us. Each one of us here is amply provided for. We are provided for spiritually. And we thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you, as you raised your hands and broke that bread and gave thanks, Lord not only did those people there have opportunity to be fed, they had opportunity to be saved and experienced eternal life, Lord God. Lord, I pray that your spirit would rise up in us as we leave today and we wouldn't forget today and we would go out and we would reach out and be those people. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.